0: That's NOom.com And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
1: This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. The Murder of My Family Episode 4 In the first three episodes of The Murder of My Family, we discuss three murder cases in which families of the victims don't know with certainty who killed their loved ones. But what if you did know who the killer was? And it wasn't just one of your family members that was killed, but rather two. What if the killer turned out to be somebody that you knew well? On August 25, 1992, Michael Holmes, age 43, and his wife Linda Holmes, who was 42, sat in their Indianapolis, Indiana living room watching TV, along with one of their four children, Catherine, who was nine years old. The couple's son, David, who was three, was asleep in his bedroom. Everything was peaceful at 4808 North Park Avenue. Linda sat in her rocking chair reading, while Michael sat in his chair in front of the TV. Catherine, or Katie, who she was known to her family, played on the floor at Michael's feet. Their peaceful Tuesday night was shattered when someone burst into their home, surprising the trio. The intruder confronted Michael and pointed a rifle at him, demanding money. Michael was shocked and surprised, but yelled out that he had money upstairs. As Michael stood up, he was shot multiple times and collapsed onto his daughter, Katie. Linda tried to get out of her rocking chair when the gunman turned his attention towards her and shot her multiple times as well. The book she was reading, How to Write Your Own Will, fell to the floor. Katie was terrified after witnessing her parents being shot, but the gunman spared her life and fled from the home. Katie crawled from underneath her father and watched helplessly as her parents lay dying in front of her. When she felt the coast was clear, Katie ran to the phone and dialed her grandmother's house and her uncle answered. When Katie told him what happened, he warned her to go upstairs and stay with her little brother. He then called police. When police arrived at the home, they found that Katie and David were unharmed, but Michael and Linda Holmes were both dead from their wounds. Michael had been shot once in the head and twice in the upper back. Linda had been shot five times. Once in the back of her head, three times in the back, and once in her abdomen. Shell casings were scattered across the living room floor. Outside in their yard, police found a semi-automatic 22 caliber rifle. Police questioned neighbors, but somehow, none of them heard any gunshots. In a nearby yard, police discovered a bag that contained a stun gun, 150 rounds of ammunition, a knife, and rubbing alcohol. As the investigation was unfolding, police attempted to locate the murdered couple's two older children, 20-year-old Amy and 18-year-old Stephen. While police were processing the crime scene, the oldest daughter, Amy, called the home and police answered the phone. They told Amy that she needed to come home immediately. Friends, relatives, and neighbors of the slain couple were shocked. They didn't know why somebody would want to kill Michael Holmes, a well-liked and popular principal of Indianapolis Public School Number no. 20, or his wife Linda, who had been a social worker for the Marion County Department of Welfare. But this is where the story takes a strange twist. You see, this case isn't a mystery or done who-done-it. Nine-year-old Katie knew and recognized the person who shot her parents. It was her own brother, Stephen. When Amy arrived home, she told police where her brother lived. Police went to his residence and found him there. They Mirandized Stephen Holmes and then questioned him. He agreed to talk. Stephen told police that he had been planning to kill his parents and that he was indeed the shooter. Later, prints taken off the rifle found at the crime scene were determined to be Stephen's. Police discovered that Stephen Holmes had purchased the rifle only a few months before using it to murder his parents. Stephen also admitted that he had brought the stun gun to use on any potential neighbors that may have heard the shots and come to investigate. It was appalling to think that Stephen Holmes would kill his parents, let alone do it in front of his younger sister. But police had an eyewitness, a confession, and physical evidence linking Stephen to the murders, so the case against him was pretty much airtight. Stephen Holmes was arrested for the murders of his parents and for attempted burglary. Immediately after being arrested, Stephen asked for a speedy trial and was given a public defender. What followed was a twisting and painful backstory to the murders. It turns out that Stephen and his older sister Amy had been adopted by Michael and Linda Holmes when they were very young. Stephen was around four, and Amy was around six. Growing up, the pair were treated well by their adoptive parents. At some point, they started to ask questions about who their biological parents were, and it was their understanding that they were abused as children before being adopted. Even after Linda gave birth to her own biological daughter, Catherine, they continued to treat Stephen and Amy as if they were their own biological children as well. But as time went by, Stephen began to have and display some serious emotional problems. When his adoptive mother Linda was pregnant with David, Stephen, who was about 15 at the time, got into a physical altercation with her and wound up punching her in the stomach. The signs of trouble didn't stop there. Stephen had assaulted his adopted father and kicked him in the groin. Even his own biological sister Amy wasn't immune to Stephen's wrath. One night as Amy lay sleeping, she awoke to one of Stephen's hands wrapped around her throat. In his other hand, he was holding a knife. Stephen set the Holmes residence on fire once. He punched Amy and threatened to rape and kill her. As Stephen waited to go to trial, he called Amy from jail and told her that if she testified against him at the trial, he would have his younger sister Katie killed. While the trial approached and media covered the case, Stephen Holmes agreed to do an interview with a local television station. When talking about his memories of life before being adopted by Michael and Linda Holmes, Stephen said he couldn't remember if he had been abused or not. Stephen went on to say that even if he had been abused, it would be a cop-out to blame the murders of his adoptive parents on abuse he had suffered as a very young child. He went on to say that the only reason he agreed to do an interview was because he didn't want people to think he was a psychotic killer. Stephen Holmes' biological parents had given an interview a few days before Stephen's. They stated that they had not abused Stephen or his sister Amy, and that they had only given the pair up for adoption because they were very poor. They added that they had been searching for their biological children for some time, right up until they saw Stephen's photo in the newspaper after his arrest. In his interview, Stephen Holmes responded to his biological parents' interview. He said if they were really searching, they would have found me. I always wanted to see what my mother looked like. At trial, Amy did testify against her brother Stephen, and detailed all the troubling events involving him that she had witnessed. She stated that on several occasions for two years previous to the murders, Stephen had mentioned that he was going to shoot his parents. It came out at trial that on the way to kill his adoptive parents, Stephen Holmes had stopped at a local pharmacy and planned to shoot some people there, but was scared off when he saw two uniformed police officers. He then went to a different location and tried to shoot some people, but his gun jammed. In the end, all of the evidence against Stephen Holmes and details of his troubled life was too much to ignore. In July of 1993, Stephen Holmes was found guilty and sentenced to 140 years in prison, but he was spared the death penalty. Stephen Holmes remains in prison today. He won't be eligible for parole until the year 2063 when he is 90 years old. This case shattered an entire family. It's sad and ironic that Stephen Holmes, who was given a home by Michael and Linda Holmes when he needed parents, left their biological children, Catherine and David, without their parents. This case is difficult on so many levels, and while Stephen lives his life behind bars, the Holmes family has been forever changed by his actions. Stephen's older sister, Amy, talked with me about the murders in her family. Those of her adoptive parents, Michael and Linda Holmes.
0: Are you also tired of one-size-fits-all weight loss plans? Meet Noom, the personalized solution that meets you where you are. Noom is able to understand your unique needs, from dietary restrictions to medical concerns. Unlike restrictive programs, Noom embraces your lifestyle and choices. Discover a sustainable approach to weight loss, tailored just for you. Honestly, Noom felt like it was made for me. It's not just about what I eat. It's about understanding why. With Noom, I've learned so much about myself and built healthier habits that stick. It's all about progress, not perfection. Say goodbye to restrictive diets and experience the noom app for yourself. With personalized lessons and expert coaching, noom's psychology and biology-based approach has helped over 5.2 million people achieve their goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at noom.com. That's n o o m.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
1: Amy, thanks so much for joining me to talk about the murders in your family. The murders of your parents, Mike and Linda Holmes.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
1: This was such a sad case all the way around for you. The first thing I have to ask you is, how difficult was it to get through this ordeal?
2: I'm not even sure you can quantify it. It was surreal, I guess is the best word to use. I remember the night it happened later after, you know, having gone to the house, having gone to the police station and finally getting home, just sitting on my roommate's car outside and thinking, this is what you read about on the news. This is what you see in the movies. This doesn't happen in real life, you know. All these people are going to wake up in the morning and they're going to see this and they're going to be thinking the exact same thing. You know, this is, wow, that poor family, I can't even imagine. But honestly, those of us there couldn't imagine. It was just beyond any kind of realm that you, I mean, you just can't even imagine. It was just painful, angry, shattered. Your whole life just is gone in in a matter of, I think, three minutes total.
1: If you can, Amy, tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you and your brother Stephen to be living with Michael and Linda.
2: My biological parents, we share the same biological mom, but my biological dad was in Vietnam when I was born, and he never really came back from the war, if that makes sense. Physically, he did, but mentally, he never did. So he was never a part of my childhood. But a lot of men were. Um, our biological mother had a lot of boyfriends, and they were not nice people. Steven was born with alcohol fetal syndrome, as was another younger sister of ours. I think two of the three of us were born with cocaine in our system. It was always drugs, always alcohol. I, I knew how to roll a joint before I was five years old. We never did them as far as I know. I don't know that she ever gave us drugs, but we would just help, you know, prepare them. Our biological mom, Patty, was just, she was insane. I mean, there was a lot of anger and probably a lot of fear in her too, but she definitely couldn't be alone. And then um, she was with Steven's biological dad for just a few months, and then he was gone. Then she married Gary, and we moved to Wisconsin, and we were there for about a year and a half. Gary would get blackout drunk and beat us till he passed out. Often we would have already been passed out. And at this point, you know, we were two, three, four years old. I I remember him smacking our little sister, who would have been less than one, smacking her clear across the room. Just so much violence and neglect. We were often locked in rooms for days at a time. We weren't fed very often. We, um, in and out of foster care, in and out of foster care, at one point before our youngest sister came along, Patty actually sold us to a couple. We were in their care as foster children and the state was ready to return us to Patty and Patty said, well, you can have them for $10,000. The couple paid her the $10,000. We were doing really well in their home. Apparently we were thriving, gaining weight, doing really well. And then she came back for more money and they would they couldn't pay. So she took us back. And it, that was just it. That was the whole first, you know, four, five years of our lives was just like that. Well, finally, she and Gary split up and I'm not quite clear exactly on all the details of what happened with our younger sister, but from what I understand, Gary kidnapped our younger sister and took her out to California where he then deserted her at a Kmart and she was adopted into another family, Gary's biological brother and and wife. We were taken back to Indianapolis by Patty and her mother stated she would not help her raise us. So Patty took us to um, the children's home, the guardian's home, which is just a nice word for an orphanage. Told us she was going to the grocery store and she'd be right back. (laughs) But we uh, stayed there for a few months, and then we went into another foster family for a year, which was at that time is when Mike and Linda, our parents, decided that they were going to adopt us, and that's a year-long process, different visitations. You know, you start off with just a couple hours, and then you work up to overnights, and then the actual adoption.
1: So that was a real stabilizing experience or a big improvement for you and your brother?
2: It was. It was, you know. They were just really excited to have us. I mean, they picked us out. They were told we were very troubled, that we had suffered greatly. Uh, It didn't take them long to figure out we had also been sexually abused, that we um, were terrified of alcohol. We hoarded food. (laughs) You know, we were just, we were very damaged kids. We were very broken. And despite all that, they still took us. They, They wanted us. And and that was just kind of who they were.
1: You were with Mike and Linda for 15 years, and you consider them to be your parents. Is that right?
2: Yes. When I say mom and dad, they are the only ones I'm speaking of.
1: Once you moved in and got accustomed to living there, how was family life?
2: It was hard. Um, I think they were really good people who wanted to do the best that they could. However, I think one of the most fateful decisions they made was not to put us in counseling immediately. But this was the late 70s, so that really wasn't, you know, a huge thing. Therapy wasn't something everybody was rushing into. I think for my end, for me, it probably would have been extremely beneficial to have had therapy right away. I don't know that it would have helped Stephen because I think at that point he had, I think he was, you know, most people are born with sociopathic tendencies, if they are sociopaths, not most people, if you understand what I mean. Uh, Most sociopaths are born that way. And I think the abuse and things he suffered certainly contributed to that. So I don't know that immediate therapy would have helped him very much but I think it would have been extremely beneficial to me. So I think that was something that really could have been done differently. But, you know, from the get-go, um, like I said, we had a lot of problems. We, we lied a lot. Abused children, learn. Lying becomes second nature to you because it's a survival mechanism. <laughs> and that's a hard habit, especially for children to break. I know my father and I had a real hard time bonding, and I don't think that we ever really truly did because I was inappropriate with my affections because of what I had been going through, and they weren't quite sure how to handle that. So what it became was he didn't let me sit on his lap, you know, hugs. I got hugs, but they were more distant. But in a small child's mind who's been through what they've been through, that's kind of seen as a rejection, even though that. Totally was not the case, you know, but a young mind can't really process that. So I think he and I also missed some important bonding there. But we settled in, I mean, Steve had a lot of problems from the get-go. He went to a couple of different preschools, a couple of different kindergartens. He was very violent from the very start. But they tried to give us a real sense of normalcy. You know, it was family dinners every night. There was vacations. We went camping almost every weekend as long as the weather was decent. Once a year, we would take trips, you know, Florida. I've been to just about every state in this country. (laughs) So they really tried, you know, church on Sundays, Bible study. There was a lot of, you know, really trying to make things normal for us. T-ball, extracurriculars, piano lessons. It was They really tried to make everything as normal as possible for us. We had just been through too much.
1: So it sounds as if they did the best they could to give you a safe and stable family environment.
2: They really did. They did the best they could with the knowledge and backgrounds that they had. And, you know, my dad was a teacher in the inner city schools. He was used to dealing with problem students. My mom had been a social worker with DCFS. So, you know, she was used to working with abused kids. However, when it's in your own home 24-7, it's a whole different ballgame. <laughs> and I don't know that anybody is adequately prepared for that. But they certainly did the best they could with what they had.
1: You mentioned that Stephen showed signs of troubling behavior or mental illness early on. Tell us about some of the things that you and your parents experienced with him.
2: The first time he honestly had the intent to kill someone. He was in kindergarten. There was a little girl singing a song he didn't like, and I'll never forget, it was Debbie Boone's, You Light Up My Life. (laughs) And he kept screaming at her to stop, and she wouldn't. So he attempted to push her out the window, and he clearly stated it was in order to kill her. That was the first instance. (laughs) And he was, like I said, he was in kindergarten when that happened. The tantrums, you know, all kids have tantrums, but his were just so violent and so destructive. And even at that young age, if we had a babysitter, he would attempt to grab her breasts. He would attempt to put his tongue in her mouth. He would hit, he would kick. He he was very fond of hurting your genital area. That was his first go-to. As he got a little bit older and got a lot stronger, I mean, they say sociopaths, psychopaths, they have an inhuman strength, and that is the truth. It is just insane how strong they are. By the time he got to be about 10 or 11, I think, yes, because I was in junior high, is when he first started really hurting people. He would leave bruises on me. He'd leave bruises on my mom. He choked me to the point of passing out a few times. That's when he also would start to threaten to stab people. He was just so violent. He began stealing at that time. He began to speak of doing horrible things to people, you know, torturous things and stuff like that. And then by the time he got to junior high is when he began to threaten rape all the time, I believe – this part's really hard (laughs) – I believe he was 12 or 13 the first time he tried to rape me. And that continued That continued up until I moved out of the house.
1: When you experienced all of this stuff that you know isn't normal, did you tell all your parents about any of it?
2: I told my parents often. I tried to speak to other relatives. Because at this point, you know, I'm showing up to school with bruises, sprains used all kinds of things. And I I tried to tell people. Uh, CPS came out to our house a few times. But my parents were very much, you know, and then by the time I got to junior high, and freshman year of high school, I was also attempting suicide frequently, self-harming frequently. So we did begin counseling. He began counseling. I began counseling. We began family counseling. And what's kind of scary is there is, absolutely no change in the fact that when you have a child like that and you have sibling abuse and a child abusing the parent, there is no help. There is zero help because it is not seen as a crime. And that is a very sad thing. And that's something I think we also need to work on in this country because it is extremely damaging to everyone involved and it's extremely dangerous, but it is not a crime and it is not addressed. So there was no help at all. And my parents just didn't know what to do. And my mom and if I just loved him enough.
1: <laughs> so your mom felt responsible for it?
2: A hundred percent. And then, you know, and I, and I don't want to disparage my mother because she honestly, you know, did everything she could to a fault. She would bail him out by the time he got to high school is when the really serious things started. Like, he you know, we were at the same high school for a short amount of time. He is the first person that they know of at my high school, old high school, to have brought a gun to school. He stole the family van a few times, drove it through a nun's house once. He was committing some serious crimes. And my mother would continue to bail him out. She would continue to rescue him. A year and a half before they died, they were gone. I was home They'd gone gone for the day, out of town to visit relatives. I was home because I had plans that night to see my best friend, and I hadn't left yet. My brother, Stephen, was very angry at me for something I don't remember what at the time. He set fire to the house, and he caused massive amounts of damage, massive amounts. The house was inhabitable for almost two months. And when I had called home to say, hey, I'm not coming home tonight. And my dad said, my dad accused me of setting the fire, which I understand the reason he did that was because my brother had told them that's what had happened. So I went to the house and there was so much damage. The fire had, he had started it in his room. Apparently it came out afterwards. Once it was proved that I could not have done it because my time was accounted for all night. My brother admitted he did set the fire and hoped that either I would come home and be caught in it because I was expected home or that I would be blamed for it. And the arson investigators told my mom, you need to press charges. And my parents did not press charges. They did not.
1: Your parents didn't want to give up on him then?
2: They would never give up on him. He did spend some time at night's which is kind of like a uh, boy's home. I think they have girls too, but it's kind of like a, uh, it's not juvie, but it's something like that. It's a group home for offenders. It's an alternative to juvenile detention, which my mom had pushed for. And he did spend some time there. That did not help him. He was uh, raped there and suffered some long-term damage because of that. Had to have some surgeries when he was released due to that. So my mom became even more reluctant at that point to do anything.
1: A year or two before the murders, Steven started saying that he wanted to kill your parents. Did you tell your parents about those threats?
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. I had many conversations with my mom. I had moved out when I was 18, and I was kind of in and out at the time. And my mom and I had many conversations. And I would tell her, Mom, one of these days, he's going to kill you guys, or he's going to kill me. He's going to kill somebody. The only thing in this boy's future is prison or death. You've got to do something. But she had no idea what to do because, like I said, there were, there were just like no, I mean, other than letting him go to jail when he did these things, which I, you know, still maintain was something that could have been done. But also as a mother, I understand you don't want to do that to your kids. You just don't. But we talked about it many times. And there were a couple of times when I lived away from the house. Before he turned 18, that my mom would call me, I think it was three separate times, and she'd say, "Stephen threw a rock through the dining room window. Stephen did this. Stephen did that. Your dad will lose his mind. Can you please take Stephen for the night?" And he would come stay at my place for just for the night. And I just, you know, I kept telling her, "Mom." You've got to do something. Got to, you, know, you don't want to give up on him, but at the same time, he's going to kill somebody. He's going to kill one of us. My mom and dad honestly thought it would probably be me before them, or my dad thought you know, it would be him. I don't think any of us really truly believed he'd kill our mom just because she was the one that always bailed him out, but there was no doubt he would kill our father, no doubt at all. She just didn't know what to do. And then he was uh, maybe eight months before the murders. He was in a very bad car accident. He was in a coma. He had to have a steel plate put in his head. And my mother was by his side the whole time. She, She went up to Michigan. She sat by him the whole time. And she promised him she would never give up on him. But once he turned 18, mom and dad did move him out of their house. You know, they had two other kids at home. And they told him, you know, you're just, you're too violent. You can't live here. So what they did was they paid for his apartment. They paid his bills. They bought his groceries. My mom did his laundry, you know, came over and cleaned. And that's where he had been living for about a month before the murders. And uh, the night of the murders, or the week of the murders, my mom had found a gun in his apartment when she went over there. And she told him, as long as you have those weapons, there were other things too, you can't come home. So I think we all knew, you know, that this, this was coming. And my mom and I had actually had a discussion just a couple of weeks beforehand. She had called and told me that he had the guns, and I told her, you know, yeah, don't, don't freaking let him in the house. You can't, you know, keep your doors locked can't let him in. But a few weeks before that, she and I had spoken and she told me, you know, hey, if anything ever happens to your dad and I, this is where we want your brother and sister to go. This is what we want done with the house. And I said, mom, you need to write this stuff down. You know, I can't, nobody's going to listen to me. (laughs) You need to make a will, which ironically enough, she was working on the night they were killed.
1: If you can take us back to after the murders, after your parents are gone, what happened to you and your siblings?
2: Well, by law, because I was the oldest, And obviously, Steve wasn't anywhere in the picture. The custody of my brother and sister automatically reverted to me, as did the house. But I immediately signed paperwork. I was nowhere. (laughs) I mean, I had my own issues. I, I abused drugs, alcohol, and everything else as a teenager, including at that time. So... They went to live with an aunt and uncle after there was a bit of a custody battle with my dad's side and my mom's side. But ultimately, it was pretty well known that my mom and dad wanted the kids to go to my mom's sister and her husband. So they went there, and I just kind of, I was going to move back home. That's why I was supposed to actually be there the night they died. I was going to move back home, get my GD, go to college, get my driver's license, all of that. And I just kind of got even more lost. I already had a lot of issues with the extended family because of my behavior, and rebellious behavior, and dropping out of school, and all the things I did, and that drifted further apart, and in my aunt and uncle's attempt to make a family unit with my brother and sister, I really wasn't included, which was perfectly understandable. They, They needed to do that to make a unit with the kids but it just kind of left me feeling more drifting i think a lot of people think you know hey you're 20 you're an adult but you're really not you know you're still kind of a stupid kid at 20. <laughs> you know you still need direction and you still need support and it just kind of all went away in an instant and i mean i'm blessed that i had great aunts and uncles who still were 100 on my side and still 100 percent supportive and then they helped a lot
1: in some ways you were back to square one you were an adult but the family part was missing again
2: Exactly. You know, it's kind of affected every relationship I've had since then because I search for that and I I try to find that and I will find myself or have found myself in the past in relationships that were not healthy at all. But I clung to them because family, you know, there's a sense of belonging, whether it's good or bad, you belong. And I actually shortly after my parents died, my biological mother, who was back with my biological father, Came crawling out from under her rock, and I went to live with them for a while. It was a horrible experience. I kind of blocked out all the abuse from before, you know, and everything, and just because I was so lost, you know. And then I, I wanted that family back so bad, and I blew that one up on purpose. I, I did things to make sure that they would not want me living there, and I left that and then went and got married.
1: <laughs> so you got married. How did you adjust after that?
2: It, it took a while. Um, my first marriage blew up like, you know, pretty much everyone knew it would, including us. Uh, <laughs> we definitely got married for the wrong reasons. Um, and then I went on to have, you know, some other long-term relationships and had my first child. Luckily, I had gotten clean and, and stopped self-harming and everything before I had my oldest. Then I, you know, was a single mom for about nine years. And then I got remarried and was married for 10 years and had another child and married my stepson. And it was good for me to have all that family back. And, you know, ultimately that marriage did not work out for various reasons. But it's gotten so much better. I don't see, you know, when a relationship doesn't work out, I no longer really feel that sense of rejection and abandonment. And that's whether it's a friendship, family, whatever. I realized that, you know, I've come to the point finally after many years of therapy. (laughs) That sometimes life just just takes different paths, and it's not just a rejection. I'm not cursed. I'm not unlovable, which was really hard for me to learn. And it's just taken a lot, and like I said, a lot of therapy. It has also turned me to doing a lot of action, also kind of not sitting in my feelings, but working through activism, whatever I can. Like we spoke of before, I really. You know, gun control is such a touchy subject, but the fact that my brother, who had committed all these crimes, had so many mental illnesses, could at the stroke of midnight turn 18 and go purchase a weapon is something I find fundamentally wrong and something, you know, we've got to have common sense there. So I, you know, advocate very strongly for that. I advocate for better mental health care because that is at the root of so many of the issues.
0: That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I advocate for siblings who are suffering
2: from sibling abuse. You know, make this a crime. Make this something that people have to be held accountable for. Parents who are abused, you know. It's, it's a lot more common than people think it is. But we have this whole, oh, siblings fight, siblings beat each other up, that's just normal. Well, no, it's not, <laughs> it's, you know. Yeah, siblings fight, but siblings holding knives to each other's throat is not normal. And we need to address that. And I think that all starts with a lot better, you know, mental health advocacy and care. And I've actually been working on a book for years since this all happened about people who are sociopaths serial killers family killers family annihilators to kind of address those issues and help bring them to light and kind of hopefully maybe make some progress that i have not seen made you know in these 26 years
1: it sounds like you're using the pain and the trauma that you suffered in a positive way to maybe help other people
2: I hope so. I really do. I I know I've done a lot of work over the years with abused kids, um, taken in kids. You know, my husband and I, we were neighborhood mom and dad. We we helped. uh, We've taken in a few kids here and there for short amounts of time. We really just, you know, I've tried to do everything I can within my own, because I do have a disability and an illness and all that. So within my own physical limitations, and like I said, I've been working on this book forever. <laughs> I'm finally at the point where I'm, I'm ready to start writing. I'm done with all the research. So I'm hoping that somebody listens, you know, and that we can get some changes. And I write my congressman, and I, I do all that.
1: Let me ask you about Katie specifically. She witnessed the actual murders. How is she doing after seeing something so horrible?
2: She received some therapy afterwards, and... Now I don't, I'm not in touch with my brother, and, my youngest brother and sister, any longer. Um, we had a falling out a few years ago, but they're they're well. They they real all things considered, they're they're doing well. They you know they have good jobs. They're productive members of society. You know, and and they're kind of they're carrying on. Well, my sister has a family, and they're carrying on. You know, the traditions of which we were raised in. You know, family dinner, family, 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 family first. And all things considered, they're doing well. I'm sure it haunts her, but it does us all.
1: <laughs> Your brother Stephen was sentenced to a lengthy prison sentence and will probably never get out. Did you have any contact with him once he went to prison?
2: No. Uh, shortly after it happened, he called me and he wrote me. And I just, I, I have nothing to say to him. You know, over the years he's tried and I, and I got updates. I get updates over the years and he, he hasn't changed. He hasn't. He had time taken off his sentence. Or you know you can get time taken off for like getting your degree and things working in the chapel things like that. But then time was added back on because he attempted to murder an orderly or a trustee and other things. He spent some time on the shoe unit. He spent like two or three years in the shoe unit, which is a complete lockdown in Michigan City. It's it's maximum worst of the worst because of his behavior and there's just really nothing he can say that's gonna make any difference and i've thought about it over the years you know going and talking to him that he can just lie to me or you know try to get money out of me or it's just so for my own peace of mind i forgave him for my own sake and just let it go
1: i think that you forgiving him and letting all that go speaks to your self-healing and progress
2: absolutely I mean, we feel, the family doesn't talk about him very often. I don't talk to my dad's side of the family outside of, like, one cousin, and we talk about him occasionally. But, like, my mom's side of the family, we don't we don't talk about him very often. Every once in a while, his name will come up, or every once in a while when my grandma was still alive, she'd ask me if I'd heard anything. But, like I said, from everything I've heard, he's, he's no different. He hasn't changed.
1: Do you think that Steven's actions are a result of the abuse he suffered in the environment he was exposed to as a child?
2: Oh, my... That's something I've studied extensively. I took a lot of criminal justice classes and um, for my own research purposes and psychology classes. So there's, there's a lot of arguments to be made about nurture versus nature. And it's really, I think in my brother's case, it's really difficult to tell. I think that, like I stated before, a lot of sociopaths are just born that way. But sociopaths can be made. If bonds are not formed, like attachments, positive, nurturing attachments are not formed. When you're very young, you don't form that empathy. You don't form those human connections. So it's really kind of hard to tell. But then you look at it, we were raised by the same people at the same time, in the same experiences, in the same circumstances. He's a killer and I am not. Then you flip over to, well, males, when they have been seriously and severely abused, are more likely to act out, whereas females are more likely to self-harm in a variety of ways. So it's really, honestly, a really tough question to answer. But I, I do know that the abuse we suffered broke both of us in major ways that cannot be repaired. And so it certainly has a lot to do with it.
1: Hopefully you'll get your book done and include some of the things that you've learned along the way to help other people.
2: Absolutely. Um, one thing I, I've learned, too, is you can actually be born a sociopath and integrate success, successfully successfully <laughs> into society. You won't form those attachments, and you won't really have that empathy, but you can. And, and I've interviewed these some of these people, and they um, tend to make great CEOs <laughs> and things like that so they can be successfully integrated into society even if you're born that way. So, you know, there is an argument for that, but when you suffer that kind of abuse, then I don't think that's possible at all.
1: So, it seems as if there'll always be the question or the dilemma of nature versus nurture.
2: And and that's what 26 years of research has taught me. We're never really going to know. <laughs> but there's and one that is something I stress in the in the book is, you know, If you have a child who is a it is not lost. That child is not, you don't need to give up on that child. You know, there is hope if there can be, you know, if they can be taught how to succeed in society, how to be, you know, a law-abiding citizen. If you don't have that, and that has to start at a very early age, then you're not going to have that. So it is something I, I cover extensively.
1: Well, when you complete the book, please reach out to me because I'd like to share it with people.
2: Oh, perfect. Absolutely. It's so important to get these stories out so people understand more.
1: Well, I think your story is tough to hear and probably hard to read about. I really think that you can help shed some light on tragedies like this one. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder in My Family. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a moment to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurdermyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter or on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash themurdermyfamily. In each episode, I give a shout-out to any new Patreon supporters. For this episode, I'd like to thank Kara Jarvis and Nancy Gerard. Thanks to all of the patrons that generously donate and keep the podcast going. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash family. And until next time, remember, every murder victim means something to somebody. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit
2: themurderinmyfamily.com for more information.